Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Saturday, December 3rd and Sunday, December 4th, 2022. Uh, there's a couple of anniversaries. Uh, December 2nd, 1805, is the anniversary of the Battle of Austerlitz, uh, in which Napoleon won what was arguably his greatest victory against a much larger joint Russian-Austrian army. Uh, the Allies suffered about 36,000 casualties and captives, compared with only about 9,000 for the French. Uh, that's killed, wounded, and captured. Uh, the French victory was so total that not only did it end the War of the Third Coalition, it actually ended the Holy Roman Empire, which had been in existence continuously since 1962 and traced its origins all the way back to Charlemagne in 800. Uh, Napoleon, after the battle, created something called the Confederation of the Rhine among the German states that had become French clients forcing, basically forcing the hand of Emperor Francis II uh, to dissolve his empire. He, he was okay. He parachuted himself out to a, uh, to a different empire, kind of, you know, uh, re-skinning re uh, what he already controlled anyway. But uh, uh, yeah, it was a major event in European history. The Holy Roman Empire, empire, empire obviously, uh, you know, had been around for quite a long time. Uh, also on December 2nd in 1942, Enrico Fermi and the gang created the first self-sustaining nuclear reaction at what was known as Chicago Pile 1, a rudimentary new, uh, reactor that was built under the campus of the University of Chicago. Uh, it just so happens to be located under the uh, library. <laughs> Actually, I know this because uh, obviously I spent a lot of time in the library when I was at the University of Chicago, and there's a little monument right outside. Uh, I was worried that I was going to be irradiated if I spent too much time down there, but uh, I, I think I managed to survive uh, intact. Uh, this was the first... Uh, of many milestone achievements for the Manhattan Project, of course, which was charged with building a nuclear bomb before Nazi Germany could, uh, and obviously successfully did that. Uh, on December 3rd, 1971, the Pakistani military undertook uh, preemptive airstrikes against several Indian military installations, uh, which was the beginning, marked the beginning of the Indo-Pakistani War of 1971. Uh, that war was itself the final phase of the Bangladesh Liberation War. Bangladesh had declared independence from Pakistan so, uh, a good, you know, months, months earlier. Uh, India was preparing to enter the war on Bangladesh's side, in part because, of course, Pakistan uh, they have beef, uh, but also because of the refugee situation, the number of Bangladeshi refugees that were crossing into India. Uh, so these strikes can be considered preemptive. They can also be considered a complete disaster from Pakistan's perspective. Uh, once the Indians entered the war, it took less than two weeks uh, to force Pakistan's surrender, uh, at which point Bangladesh became a, a, no was no longer East Pakistan. It was Bangladesh. Uh, and about a third of the Pakistani military was killed, wounded, or captured uh, in this conflict, mostly as it was overwhelmed by the Indians. Uh, there is a Cold War angle to this, of course, uh, Pakistan was a, a close U.S. ally. Uh, so the United States almost intervened in this conflict and did kind of try to talk the Indians down uh, to calling things off once the once it was clear that they had won, uh, which almost sparked a, a Russian intervention, a Soviet intervention. I shouldn't say Russian, sorry. Uh, the Soviets and Indians were allies, and this this almost uh, could have been a, uh, a bigger deal, but uh, fortunately turned out not to be. Uh, it's noteworthy, I think, that the U.S. Uh, did 
side with the Pakistanis, who, of course, were accused of uh, grotesque atrocities uh, committed on the Bangladeshi people, um, the military uh, during the war, during the, the first phases of the war before India got involved. Um, so, you know, good job uh, on our part, as always, in the, the heat of the Cold War. Uh, on December 3rd, 1984, a Union Carbide pesticide plant in Bhopal, India, spewed toxic methyl isocyanate gas out overnight. Uh, this resulted in the deaths of between 3,800 and 16,000 people, caused injury to over half a million more. Uh, Union Carbide maintains that the leak was caused by some kind of deliberate sabotage, but Indian courts subsequently found several officials at the plant guilty of negligence. Uh, the Bhopal disaster is one of the best known, most infamous, uh, worst, really, industrial catastrophes in modern history, uh, and its adverse effects are still being dealt with by people uh, in the Bhopal region to the present day. Um, and on December 4th, 1676, a Swedish army under King Charles XI defeated an invading Danish army at the Battle of Lund. Uh, this was a relatively small battle uh, in terms of the number of soldiers who were involved at the beginning, but in percentage terms, one of the bloodiest battles in European history. Uh, there were about 21,000 soldiers, give or take, involved on both sides total. Uh, roughly two-thirds of them were killed or wounded during the course of this battle. Uh, the Swedish victory thwarted uh, the Danish invasion. It is therefore considered a turning point in the uh, 1675 to 1679 Scanian War. Uh, on to the news. As expected, uh, OPEC Plus member states uh, decided to stay the course on Sunday, sticking to the same reduced production level uh, that they implemented at last month's club meeting. This is unsurprising, but it does raise the potential for an increase in oil prices when the European Union's embargo on most Russian oil, Russian oil that's imported by pipeline, uh, takes effect on Monday. And when or maybe if the EU G7 Russian oil price cap, which we'll be talking about uh, in a moment, takes effect. In the Middle East, in Syria, at least two people, one of them civilian and the other police officer, were killed. Seven others were injured in an anti-government protest in southern Syria's predominantly Druze, Suweda province on Sunday. Uh, demonstrators reportedly stormed government buildings in Suweda City, including a police station and the provincial government office. Uh, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights is alleging the security forces opened fire on the protesters with live ammunition. Uh, Suweda is not exactly a hotbed of anti-government sentiment, uh, at least when compared with some other parts of Syria. Uh, Syrian Druze, uh, for example, largely stayed out of the civil war. Uh, but the province does see periodic demonstrations over Syria's weak economy, its high level of corruption, etc. Uh, and residents are more heavily armed, residents of Soweto are more heavily armed than they used to be, certainly than they were prior to the, the civil war beginning, uh, specifically because of the emergence of Islamic State uh, as a threat to the populace. They have armed themselves to protect against that, uh, making these kinds of protests potentially a little more combustible. Uh, in Israel-Palestine, someone fired a rocket out of Gaza late Saturday, prompting the usual Israeli military response early Sunday. Israeli officials say their airstrikes targeted a tunnel network and a weapons plant. There's no word of any casualties in the exchange, and there's been no claim of responsibility with respect to the rocket. In Iran, there is a story that circulated all day Sunday. Media outlets were positively vibrating with excitement 
that the Iranian government has had shuttered or has shuttered, has closed, has disbanded, whatever you want to call it, its morality police unit. That's the unit whose treatment of Masa Amini back in September, uh, she died in morality police custody with indications that she'd been beaten, sparked protests that have been raging across Iran ever since. Those reports stem from a comment made in Iranian media by a prosecutor general, Iranian prosecutor general, Mohammad Jafar Montazari, uh, in which he, one, disavowed any connection between the morality police and Iran's judicial establishment, and two, said that the morality police had been, and I'm quoting here, shut down by the same place that it had been launched from in the past, end quote. Uh, now, much as I'd like to say this is a true story and there is no more morality police, uh, although I have a, a bit of a caveat about that, too, uh, I think these uh, aforementioned media outlets have maybe jumped to a conclusion that is not necessarily supported by the evidence, and I'll explain why. Uh, Montazari's comments were very vague, uh, could be open to multiple interpretations, uh, and his main point seems to have been point number one, not point number two. He was trying to kind of wash his own hands and those of the judicial establishment of any link to the morality police, which I think it's safe to say is one of the more loathed public institutions in Iran these days. Uh, this is true insofar as the morality police falls under uh, the Iranian government's law enforcement command, which is housed in the interior ministry, not in the judiciary. Uh, but that's also one of several reasons why Montazari, who is a relatively junior official despite his kind of uh, you know esteemed-sounding title, prosecutor general, uh, it, it would not be the person who would be making an announcement this big. He would not be uh, the one to reveal this information to the Iranian public. It, it would be a huge policy change. It would have to come from somebody else, and there's been no announcement uh, of the morality police's dissolution by any major Iranian political figure, from the president, from the interior minister, from even the head of the morality police from certainly not from the supreme leader uh none of the people you would expect to hear from on something like this uh and in fact iranian media is reporting other iranian media outlets are reporting uh that the unit has not been disbanded uh what he may have meant what montazari may have meant by shutdown is that the morality police's operations have more or less been suspended uh there are a lot of uh, there's been a lot of talk uh, around these protests uh, and specifically having specifically to do with the morality police seemingly being absent from the streets. People are noticing uh, that they're not there. They're not out there. They're not enforcing uh, the dress code, which is the, the morality police's main responsibility. Um, they're just missing. And so it's entirely possible that under the sort of heated um, you know, a, a situation with the protests over Masa Amini, somebody in the Iranian establishment has told the morality police to take a couple of months off effectively. Um, that's, that's entirely plausible. Uh, and that could be what Montazari meant, that, that it's been shut down temporarily by, you know, its own, uh, the, the, the unit's own authorities. Um, it's certainly possible that there's something more than that going on. But again, we would need somebody, I think, a little higher in the food chain, so to speak, uh, to confirm that. Um, it would be surprising if there was anything more than that going on. And I'll, I'll tell you, the, the leaders 
uh, of Iran, of the Islamic Republic today, are still basically from the generation that fought the 1979 revolution and the aftermath seized power. And and one lesson they took from that event was that the Shah, uh, every time he tried to make a concession to the protesters or to his opponents, uh, it was taken as a sign of weakness rather than uh, appeasing the protesters or appeasing the opposition. Now, this is because the Shah was so hated by this point that nobody really wanted any concession other than his removal uh, from power. But every concession that he tried to make with the intention of kind of calming things down was simply taken as uh, encouragement that the protests were working or that the the revolution was working uh, and that they should keep at it. Uh, That's a lesson that Iranian leaders took to heart. And I I think it would be very surprising to see them make uh, what would be perceived as a major concession uh, to the protesters while the protests are ongoing. I say perceived because this is my the last thing I'm going to say about this. Disbanding the morality police is is not so cut and dried. Uh, prior to that unit's establishment in 2005, the enforcement of the dress code, the hijab code, if you will, uh, was handled basically informally. It was often done by besieged uh, paramilitary. These are the the volunteer, civilian volunteers that, that fight alongside or fight with the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, and they were just as brutal, if not more so, because of a lack of really uh, strong oversight than the morality police. The morality police in a sense, was sort of a professionalization uh, of this uh, idea of enforcing the dress code. Uh, If the unit really were disbanded, but the code, the hijab code, remained in place, as it probably would, uh, that informal system of enforcement could come back, and it probably would not be any better than the the morality police and could could even conceivably be worse. Uh, Alternatively, the Iranians could just reskin the morality police, rename them something else, it doesn't matter, uh, and pretty much continue on as before. So even if the order has come down to disband this unit, that doesn't necessarily mean that anything has changed. It would, you know, we'd have to know uh, more. And again, I don't think, based on the evidence that's available, that you can conclude that the unit has been disbanded. Who's to say? But But that's just my sense. Uh, On to Asia, uh, in Azerbaijan, where authorities temporarily occupied the Lashin Corridor, which is one of two roadways that link Nagorno-Karabakh to Armenia. Uh, They did this Saturday morning, raising immediate fears that there was some sort of new attack that was about to be launched against the predominantly Armenian Karabakh enclave. Uh, Instead, the Azerbaijanis established roadblocks along the corridor for several hours, backing up traffic uh, in both directions, I believe, before packing up. Uh, The reason that they did this, uh, apparently, is because it's become broadly accepted in Azerbaijani media uh, that the Armenians, uh, with the support or at least the uh, acquiescence, of the Russian peacekeepers who are overseeing Lashin under the terms of the 2020 deal that ended that fall's war in Karabakh, uh, are using the corridor to smuggle weapons into Karabakh while smuggling gold and other precious minerals out. Uh, The 2020 war left Lashin precariously in Azerbaijani control, but the peace deal did oblige the Azerbaijanis to open a second Armenia to Karabakh corridor. And so there's some frustration that people are still using Lashin. And I think that's where this smuggling claim comes from, which, uh, you know, who knows if it has any basis in reality. I don't I don't get the sense that it does. But, uh, you know, I can't say for sure. Uh, Apart from the smuggling claims, uh, the president of Azerbaijan, Ilham Aliyev, uh, is increasingly frustrated uh, because he wants to open his own 
bespoke corridor, the Zangazur corridor, uh, that would connect Azerbaijan proper to Nakhchivan, which is an exclave that lies on the other side of Armenia, on, on the west of Armenia. Uh, Azerbaijan is to Armenia's east. Uh, but Nakhchivan is part of Azerbaijan. And so he wants, much like Lashin sort of connects Karabakh to, uh, to Armenia, Aliyev wants his own special corridor, rail and road, uh, that Azerbaijanis could travel between these two regions that would go across southern Armenia. He insists that building such a corridor was also stipulated by that 2020 peace deal. And so he may be moving uh, against Lachine to, to try and intimidate um, the Armenians, Armenian officials, into giving him what he wants uh, in terms of the southern corridor. Uh, the Armenians, for their part, maintain that the 2020 deal only requires them to allow Azerbaijani vehicles to transit through southern Armenia to go to and from Nakhchivan. They are afraid, and I think not without good reason, uh, that creating a dedicated Azerbaijani corridor to, to Nakhchivan that runs all the way across southern Armenia would effectively cut uh, Armenia off from the Iranian border. It would it would render that border sort of null and void from the Armenian perspective. There are probably ways that you could implement this uh, that would not cause that, but uh, there's negotiations on it uh, have not gone anywhere, and so that's where things stand. And I think uh, you know this this incident in Lachine is probably related to uh, the Zangazur question, uh, in addition to this uh, weird smuggling claim. Uh, in Afghanistan, uh, the Islamic State has claimed responsibility for Friday's attack on the Pakistani embassy in Kabul, you may remember from Friday's roundup, uh, which left one guard wounded. Uh, Afghan police have arrested one person in connection with that incident, which apparently involves snipers uh, stationed in a nearby building. Uh, the target there was the chief of the Pakistani mission. He was unharmed, but the guard was wounded. Uh, in Pakistan, uh, Pakistani Taliban fighters uh, ambushed a police unit in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province on Saturday, killing three police officers. The attack capped a busy week in which the TTP, the Pakistani Taliban, uh, carried out or, or declared, sorry, declared an official end uh, to their faltering ceasefire with the Pakistani government and then carried out an attack on a polio vaccination team in Baluchistan province that killed four people. Uh, on to Africa. In Tunisia, UGTT, which is the powerful Tunisian public sector union, broke with President Kais Saeed on Saturday. Uh, union boss Nureddin Taboubi decried uh, the president's, I'm quoting him here, current path because of its ambiguity and individual rule and the unpleasant surprises it hides for the fate of the country and democracy. Now, to this point, UGTT has been fairly receptive to Saeed's constitutional agenda since he established basically one-man rule back in July 2021. It supported parts of it. Uh, the parts that it found objectionable, the most it's done is registered some mild rhetorical opposition. Uh, so this is a, a new thing. This kind of major break or major public break uh, is a new development. It's not clear to me why the union has suddenly gone this route, uh, but it does come at a somewhat bad time for Saeed, who is planning an election 
to fill the new and considerably neutered parliament that he's created under these constitutional changes that he's pushed through. Uh, That election is supposed to take place on December 17th. UGTT is a very powerful union. It's demonstrated an ability to put a very large number of people in the streets uh, and or to disrupt uh, Tunisian life and the Tunisian economy with strikes. Uh, so if, if it wants to interfere with that election, it may have uh, enough juice to, to do that. It'll be uh, something to, to watch in the coming days. Uh, in West Africa, members of the economic community of West African states announced over the weekend that they're planning to create a peacekeeping force whose primary mission sounds like it would be preventing or reversing coups in a region that, as we all know, has seen a number of those over the past couple of years. Uh, I have no idea how this force would be formed or how it would work, given that most coups uh, anywhere, really, but in West Africa, certainly like anywhere else, uh, most of them are over well before ECOWAS or any block like that could conceivably kind of pull itself together and marshal its forces to go in and stop them. Uh, So I'm really not sure how this would work, but it does sound ambitious. So I guess you have to give them credit for that. Uh, In Nigeria, unknown gunmen attacked a mosque in Nigeria's Katsina state late Saturday, killing at least 12 people, including an imam, while abducting several others. Some number of the abductees were apparently rescued following the attack. Bandit groups in many parts of northern Nigeria uh, attack communities like this in order to extort uh, extort protection money from them, uh, and they kidnap civilians uh, with an eye, obviously, toward ransoming them uh, back to their loved ones. Uh, In Ethiopia, the field commander for the Tigray People's Liberation Front, Tedese Warede, uh, claimed on Saturday that some 65% of the TPLF's fighters have, and I'm quoting here, disengaged from battle lines and moved to designated places, end quote, uh, in accordance with the peace deal the TPLF and the Ethiopian government signed last month. Uh, The thing is, that deal stipulated that the TPF was to disarm and fully stand down as of Two days ago, this past Friday, which obviously it hasn't. Clearly, they are behind schedule or they missed their deadline. Uh, Tedese reiterated the TPLF's position, which is that it cannot completely demobilize until third party forces, by which uh, I mean the Eritrean military and regional security forces from the Amhara region of Ethiopia, leave Tigray. So uh, it seems pretty clear that the TPLF is not prepared to go fully in on implementing the peace deal until those forces. Uh, are shown the door, proverbially. Uh, On to Europe. Uh, In Russia, it is still early, but so far it sounds like that new EU G7 Russian oil price cap is going over like the proverbial lead balloon. Uh, The Russian government came out of the gate very quickly uh, after it was announced on Friday, declaring on Saturday that it will not accept the cap. It's working on ways to dodge it. Uh, That could be easier said than done. Uh, The cap works because international shipping and insurance firms are likely not going to risk Western sanctions in order to facilitate Russian oil exports at prices higher than the $60 the cap established on or the $60 cap uh, that was established on Friday. Uh, Russia could and apparently has tried to self-insure its oil shipments, uh, which is one way to try to get around this. But even China, uh, reportedly, according to Russian media, Kommersant, a Russian website, uh, has refused to buy oil, Russian oil, under that system with a Russian kind of self-insured system. So even China, even China, which can afford to take the hit on the one hand and has this supposedly, you know, 
uh, unbreakable, unfathomably deep friendship bond with Russia uh, isn't buying oil under those conditions. So uh, the Russians could have a little bit of a difficult time getting around this. Uh, Another thing they could do is just stop exporting oil under the terms imposed by the cap. But they'd probably be leaving a a fairly considerable amount of revenue on the table, even at $60. Uh, Russian oil doesn't trade much higher than that right now. So they'd be leaving still a pretty hefty profit on the table. Uh, The hope on their part would be that cutting production would cause an oil price spike so serious that the West would immediately turn around and cave uh, and and get rid of the the cap or at least, you know, I guess adjust it much higher, uh, which seems unlikely to me. But, you know, what do I know? Uh, on the flip side, uh, the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky slammed the cap on Saturday as too high. Uh, he criticized the EU and the G7 for, I'm quoting here, trying to avoid hard decisions by refusing to set it at a lower level that would cut more deeply into Russian revenues. Uh, now, when you put it that way, it seems like we might as well eliminate the cap altogether, seeing as how it's not going to do much good anyway. Though, again, what do I know? Uh In Ukraine, there's a story in the Wall Street Journal that Russian forces occupying parts of Ukraine seem to be going to some lengths to remove aspects of the culture and history of those regions that might distinguish them as Ukrainian rather than Russian. Uh, I'll just read a couple of quote, a couple of paragraphs here. More than 200 Ukrainian cultural sites have been partially or completely destroyed, according to the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. In occupied parts of the country, residents say Ukrainian flags are banned, wearing a vishivanka, I uh, hope I didn't mangle that too badly, a traditional Ukrainian wool shirt can lead to detention. Books in Ukrainian are being pulled from school shelves and tossed out. Uh, Our culture and language are on the front lines, Alexander Chachenko, uh, the Ukrainian culture minister, said on November 9th, uh, which the country celebrates as the day of the Ukrainian language. Russian officials didn't respond to requests for comment, but have said publicly that they were taking both civilian and cultural artifacts from the city, this is Kherson, uh, to protect them from Ukrainian attacks. Uh, That protection claim, I guess, has some plausibility, though it's happening, uh, this this kind of taking the public and the the artifacts away is happening amid a much broader uh, effort to basically strip Ukraine of anything that can be carried away uh, that looks an awful lot like looting. Uh, So I think that's just as plausible an explanation as the idea that they're taking them for their own protection. Uh, on to the Americas in Colombia. Uh, President Gustavo Petro announced on Saturday that his negotiators had reached an agreement with the Rebel National Liberation Army, or ELN, that will see the indigenous Embera people return to their lands in western Colombia's Choco and Risaralda provinces. I hope I'm not butchering all these things too badly. Sorry. Uh, that community, the Embera, had been em- displaced by violence. Uh, involving the ELN, along with several of Colombia's other armed groups. The ELN has yet to comment on Petro's statement, but this would be the first of what would ideally be several agreements between the government and Colombia's largest rebel group, culminating at some point, theoretically, if all goes well, uh, in a peace deal. In El Salvador, Salvadoran President Nayib Bukele uh, announced on Saturday that he deployed 10,000 police and soldiers to surround San Salvador's Soyapango suburb, uh, much of which is apparently under the control of the MS-13 and Barrio 18 gangs. Uh, He's apparently planning to use extraction teams to remove, I'm quoting uh, Bukele here, all the gang members still there one by one, end quote. 
Uh, El Salvador is still under a state of emergency that Bukele imposed in March, so he's that that facilitates him doing things like this. Uh, that state of emergency was ostensibly imposed over gang violence. The police have arrested uh, around 50,000 people, I think, at this point, uh, and his critics accuse him of rounding up a number of political prisoners uh, within that total. Uh, and finally, uh, in the United States, uh, Daniel Larison at Responsible Statecraft reports on a new poll that suggests a significant portion of the American public would p- indeed prefer more restraint in U.S. foreign policy. Go figure. Uh, he writes, the results of a morning consult survey show that there, may, there continues to be substantial public support for scaling back U.S. military entanglements. Large blocks of Republicans and Democrats are in favor of less involvement in the affairs of other countries in general, and a plurality of Americans supports decreasing overseas deployments and reducing involvement in foreign conflicts. While there were slight fluctuations over the course of the three-month survey, there were more voters that said they wanted a decreased military presence and a reduced role in foreign wars than that then chose the status quo or a larger role. The disconnect between what this plurality of voters wants and what the government is doing in different parts of the world is as big as it has ever been. Uh, So you can check that out. Uh, Check out the survey. You can click through and and check out the survey as well. Uh, But on that note, we are going to call it a night. I'm going to call it a night. Uh, Thank you for listening uh, and or reading uh i as always it's it's greatly appreciated and uh, to those of you who are subscribers uh those of you on the free list uh thank you for checking out the newsletter and those of you who have made the jump to paid subscriber uh thank you for making it possible for me to do this work if you haven't made the jump uh please consider it uh you know i hope you find the newsletter valuable it can't go on without the support of of subscribers uh, i'm going to have a new writer uh, jumping on board this week. I hope. I hope his piece will get out this week. Uh, I'm very excited about that. Stay tuned. We're going to announce. Uh, you know, make a little announcement about him uh, tomorrow. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Uh, but that too, I can't. You know, can't bring on new writers. Can't can't sustain that uh, without subscriber support. And it is. Uh, you know, the holiday season. So if you. Uh, check the site out. You you might even find that we're uh, maybe theoretically running a little holiday discount. I don't want to confirm or deny that. Uh, anyway, um, with that, uh, as always, uh, until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.